Well, good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the, uh, the pastors on staff. And uh, I was recently confronted with a question, this question. Remember when you were fun? Like, how are you supposed to take that when someone says, remember when you were fun, right? Because the assumption is there was a time when I was fun, and I'm currently living in a time where I'm not fun, but I think I'm really fun. Now, what makes this question brutal is this question came out in a really weird way. I was on vacation um, Thanksgiving week. My family and I, we went away, and it was just the four of us. And in our family rhythm, it's pretty rare for our family, just the four of us, to go away. But we would. It was just us, just our family, no stress, no work, no in-laws. It was great. And as the week is going by, all of a sudden I find myself relaxing. I find myself enjoying myself. I'm actually enjoying my kids. And I start cranking music in the morning and I'm having fun and we're having a great time. About halfway through, we're sitting around uh, this breakfast and, uh, and Katie says, man, you were so fun this morning. In fact, I think like, that's why I think I fell in love with you. You just you brought such joy to our home, such joy to our family. I mean, you, it, was, it was great. And then the worst part is my kids go, he was? I'm like, no, I really was. It was, it was a soul crusher. I'm like, ugh. Because in my mind, I remember being young, and I remember being carefree, and I remember being so full of joy and loving doing adventurous things. And now I'm just like... I have moments of happiness, maybe, you know? And, uh, and my poor kids, they, they affirm that. So I'm like, okay, I got to work on that. And then, of course, I'm re- looking ahead and realizing, guess who gets to preach on the joy week? Yes! Awesome! And, uh, and what's interesting about joy is you have joy, which is a major theme. I mean, it's like one of the, it's one of the four themes of Advent. So that's an important reason to talk about it. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? As we move it towards Christ, as the Holy Spirit has more and more of us. The fruit of the Spirit actually has His way in us, and we develop these attributes. And joy, love, joy is the second one, right? So that's pretty important. And I think, truthfully, joy is something that I think almost all humans want more of. I know I need more of it. I want more of it. I would love it if, uh, if my kids were like, yeah, I would use joy as a way to describe my dad instead of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a look at the passage of Scripture. This is Luke chapter 2. It's the beginning of the Christmas story, and uh, we're just going to jump right into it. It says this, But the angel said to them, this is the angels showing up at the shepherds, right? The, you know, a little Christmas story when little kids dress like shepherds and the angels come. This is what the angels say. The angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy. How awesome. When's the last time you had good news that has caused great joy? There's good news. You're like, oh, that's good. But good news, the kind of news that actually in your core of your being causes this reaction. Where, and, the, and the result of that is great joy. Not great dread, not great anxiety, not the world is going down, but great joy. And not just great joy, but for all the people. For today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah and the Lord. I love that. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. But for me, I, the very first question I thought of is, what in the world is the difference between joy and happiness? And as I'm not really an emotional person, I don't really, I don't have a huge emotional, you know, breath as, as it is. And so all the emotions, they get kind of like lumped together. So I want to know, what is the difference between joy and happiness? And I came across this really simple definition. Joy is as joy is cultivated internally, and it comes when you make peace with who you are, with why you are, and with how you are. 
Joy is like this state of being. It's, it's, right, it's cultivated internally. It's something that comes from the inside of you. And what happens is when you are fully at peace with who you are and with why you are and with how you are, when you've like settled all those things and you're at peace at that, like joy is this emotion. It's this state of being that comes and dwells and, and bursts forth in us. Okay? Happiness is a little different. Happiness is this. It tends to be externally triggered and is based on other people, other things, other places, thoughts, and events. Right? Something really fun happens, something really great happens, and you feel a certain way about it. Right? And, uh, and so the difference, the way I think of it is this. Because I'm a human, I'm dysfunctional, I compare myself among everybody. And, and because of that, the way I feel is based on my surroundings. It's based on the people I'm with. It's based on the situation I find myself in. It's based on my health. And when all those things are going well, then I'm happy. If those people are driving me crazy or I'm not doing that well or I'm comparing myself and I'm not doing as well as them, then I'm not happy. But this, it's not, the, the great news wasn't causing great happiness for all people. The, this good news is news that caused great joy. And what caused great joy is there's this opportunity to come and have peace with who you are, with why you are, and with how you are. And this is what I love. So this is the basic deal. Joy is that if you, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not Christian, if you are someone who wants to experience joy, then you have to do the hard work. And this is weird because it's not just like try harder sort of work. This is like this internal work. This is this reflective work. It's the work that you do that doesn't pay off any dividends at first, but it's the slow and steady process of becoming healthy whole people. That's Christian, non-Christian. That's just the truth of how it is. And so you, when you recognize who you are and why you are and how you are, who's your identity, who are you made to be, what are you called to do, and then how do you end up feeling about those things, right? That is joy. And for me, I think this. I think Christmas is actually a great answer to all these questions. If you're wondering, who am I? Why am I? How am I? I think the Christian story, what happens on Christmas is an incredible way to help shape those things because we now begin to get this picture of who you are. You are people who are loved by God, who are valued by God. You're not just made in the image of God, but you're, not, but you're valuable people who God longs to be with and have intimacy with. And, have, and then not only does he want to be with you, but he actually created you for purpose, not just for hard work, but to be part of the kingdom of God. He made you to be part of the body of Christ in all of your unique giftedness, your unique uh, um, peculiarities, all of the things that you bring to the table that are just so, you. Like God made you and wants to leverage you in those ways for his kingdom. So why you were created, you were created for a very intentional and huge purpose. And how are you? If you can come to terms with how God made you and what he made you to do, and you get to be intimate with God, and right, you have intimacy with God and with each other, all of a sudden you have this sense of peace and joy becomes more and more a part of who we are. So, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for I bring you good news that'll cause great joy for all the people. So the question is, what is this great news? That'll cause great ju- that will cause great joy. Well, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born, the Messiah, the Christ, or the Messiah, the Lord. And so what is this great news? The, the great news is that God, the creator of the universe, has become Emmanuel, God with us. He came to earth as a little baby. It's the Christmas story. We go, oh, he's in a manger. So cute. Um, and what's so great about the story is that God basically did it that way to know that we, we have access to him. He's an approachable God. God longed to understand, to have empathy with his people and to model how to live and ultimately make space for us to be in relationship with him. So he came as a savior. Last week, Jeff did an awesome uh, sermon on love and talked about God being a rescuer and paying our ransom. And it's really good news, unless you don't think 
you're in trouble. And this is why no one really likes being Christians, because the starting point in the Christian story is that you are not okay. That's an awful way to begin, because we try so hard to present that we're okay. But if we're quiet for even a second, if we begin to think about what's going on inside of us and who we really are, we all know that there is some deep and dark, messed up stuff that we try our hardest to shove aside, put aside, white knuckle our way through. And how freeing to go, you know what, I am not okay I'm in big trouble. I got some garbage in my life. And if you've ever actually shared that with someone and someone's forgiven you or someone's known that and still loves you, the amount of intimacy and depth of relationship that you have with that person is off the charts. And so we don't need to hide from each other. We don't need to hide from God. But Jesus came to be our Savior, recognizing you are in big trouble. You have screwed up. You've made gigantic mistakes. There is awfulness deep inside of you. That's in there. But instead of trying to pretend it's not there, Jesus said, I know it's there, and I've rescued you. I've saved you. So he's come as our Savior, and he's come as the Messiah. And the Messiah just simply means anointed one. And a lot of times we think of the Messiah, like that, and the people were waiting for the Messiah to come, to be this ruler, this king, this government official who was going to wipe out the oppressors and come in and establish this new reign. Well, that's part of what Jesus did, but not in the way that people expected it. Jesus came to come in and establish a new rule, a new reign. It just looks totally different. Instead of looking like power and authority, it looks like humility and service and generosity, right? That's this new kingdom. But the Messiah it just means anointed one. It's not just the king. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that king. But there are other people who are anointed throughout Scripture too, priests, were anointed. The priests had this special job. They were set apart by God. They were anointed with oil, set apart so that they could be the people who would stand in the gap from this holy and pure God and these sinful and wretched people. The priests stood in the gap and offered sacrifices to maintain a relationship between these two people. And Jesus comes as the ultimate priest, the ultimate high priest whose sacrifice once and for all is taken care of so that we get to be in relationship with God. And prophets were also um, anointed with oil. Prophets were anointed and set apart. People who, whose whole job was to tell people about who God is and what God longs for his people. Because God's invisible, and because God's invisible, we can make God do whatever we want them to do. Prophets would come and say, no, that invisible God's not the real God. This is what God, Yahweh, the creator of all things, this is what he wants for you to do. This is who he is and who he's called you to be. And Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate clarifier of who God is. If you want to know who God is, what God is like, what God longs for his people, you look to Jesus. And lastly, the Lord. Adonai, the Messiah. I mean, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God most high. Jesus, who comes as little baby. He's not just a little baby. He's the second part of the Trinity. He is God in human form. And every single person who's ever come close to God, come close to the presence of God, have been compelled to bow and to worship him and to submit to him. All things that are not native to us in our culture. But those things, if we can get our head around that Jesus saves us, he's the Messiah offering a new way to rule, and ultimately he is God, the person that we should worship and bow to. When we get our head around those things, those then answer the question, who am I, what is my purpose, and what I'm called to do? All right. Christianity 101. Do you feel joyful? Okay. Here's the big question. Does it matter? If you've been around Sunday school, if you've been around the church, everything I just said is like, duh, no-brainer. So the big question is, why then do Christians struggle with joy? If we know in our heads, beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
that Jesus is God, that he's come to, he loves us, he's given us purpose, and he longs to be intimate with us, why then don't we feel joy? Maybe I'm just projecting all my garbage onto you, but I got the mic. So, <laughs> so this morning I thought, what would it be like, instead of going, here's how to, this is what joy is, what if we actually went through kind of the spiritual formation practice of moving towards joy? Because every human I've ever been, a part, been around longs for joy. And we're so busy. I mean, as soon as church is over, you're going to have to go to a Christmas party and you're going to have to go shopping. You have to deal with your kids. And like, like, it is out of control. And who has time? Who has 20 minutes in the morning to just be quiet and not have people in our face? So why not, while we're together, since we have this time set aside, let's walk through the spiritual formation so that we can actually experience joy. And then not just experience, but joy then becomes a marker that transforms our life. Does that sound Okay. Yeah, what are you going to say? Oh, you have to do it. Okay, so grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 73. Psalms are basically the prayer journal, journal of the Bible. It's God's Word. And what's so great about it is um, it gives us an insight of ways to pray. A lot of times in our prayer language, we, the way we t- talk to God, we get, get kind of limited in what we say. We forget we can talk about certain things. And the Psalms kind of open up new language and new ways for us to pray. And Psalm 73 is this incredible prayer. It's by one of the Levites uh, it's named Asaph, and uh, it starts like this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I love it. Verse 1, good theology. This is what I know to be true. Isn't that great? Right? We, the, Jesus came to bring good news that will cause great joy. For today, in the town of David, a Savior will be born, the Messiah, the Lord. Yes. Good theology. But what I love about this prayer is that's just verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Let's go. So sorry. The first one is that head knowledge isn't doing it, right? So just knowing good theology, not working for us, not working for me. And that's just verse 1. But verse 2 then goes in to this process here. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I had envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when I think about why don't I experience joy, I think it's because comparison is destroying my heart. Because instead of having God, the unmovable mover, the person who is steady, who there's no t- shadow of turning, instead of, that, instead of God being the one that I reflect off of who is the focus of all my thoughts. That's where I get my value. That's where I get my purpose. Instead of that, I have all these people in my life, all these, um, yeah, just people and circumstances in my life, and I base all of that on them. And all of a sudden, I find comparison is what's ruling my heart. And when comparison jumps in, then all of a sudden envy um, jumps in, and it is game over. I love this. So I'm just going to read this passage. I'm going to read from verse 2 to verse 14. And uh, just imagine, well, this is what's so great. They didn't have Instagram then. There was no Facebook then. It's not like the, the, the Levi, this, this, um, this priest, was sitting around scrolling through Instagram going, look at all these people who are doing better than me. Right? There was no such thing back then. And yet, if you could just close your eyes and imagine, last time you were scrolling through Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat or whatever, and these feelings are just like, that's what I feel. All right. So for I, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens, and they're not plagued by human wills. Right? Whoever goes, I'm sick on Facebook. No, everyone's always on vacation. Everyone's always doing great. Um, therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. 
From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and they speak with mouths. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn on them, and they drink up waters of abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They go on assembling wealth, and surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and I have washed my hands of innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. What a whiner. But I'm like, I get it. I totally get it. This priest who's been wanting to honor God, who's longed to honor God, who said, you know what, I'm going to say no to this stuff. I'm going to give my money to this stuff. I'm going to abstain from these things, only to find out everybody on Facebook is on vacation and dating and falling in love and going to wild parties that I don't get to go to because I'm trying to follow God and my life sucks. And we're good Christian people, so we rarely say that kind of stuff out loud. But I think if we're honest, that's in us. If you sat and reflected on all of the things that you thought and you felt as you observe people around you, we all go, oh, oh poor me. Envy is part of, it's, it's the shadow part of who we are as humans. It is in all of us. And if it's in us doing Instagram and Facebook and it's in this, this Levite priest, then I think we just have to come to terms that it is in us. Now, envy is one thing, but I, and this isn't so much in this passage, but I think this is, this is where it gets a little gnarly. Envy is looking to somebody else and thinking, man, I would love to have what they have. But where it gets really scary is when it turns to resentment. Because what resentment is now you've attached a negative emotion of anger to this feeling of what someone has that you don't have. And you end up blaming them that somehow they are, because of their having a good life, you're not having a good life. It's like God has a hundred chits uh, of good blessing and he's given them all away and you didn't get any. And if, that, if someone has something, then, then you got left out. Or if someone got invited to a party, everyone's like, I know, we're not going to invite them. Only middle schoolers do that. Adults rarely consider other people. Like if, but we think they are intentionally trying to hurt me. They're intentionally trying to hurt my feelings. And resentment rises up in us. And resentment is the scariest and darkest thing. I mean, resentment is how the whole 20th century went south. The rise of fascism and communism, those two awful um, ideologies that killed millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people were founded on resentment. Those people have what I don't have, so we're going to take it by force. And it is in all of us. And the scariest part about resentment is the way that we make ourselves feel better about it is we have self-righteousness, right? And, and, and we think we're, we're virtuous. We are the virtuous ones. We are the ones doing right. They're the ones doing wrong. Even in this prayer, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands of innocence, but yet all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. And so I think if joy is not something that is, you know, just present in your life, if joy is not one of the markers of your life, then I just think one thing to consider is maybe envy and resentment have taken root. And maybe we're covering our envy and resentment with self-righteousness and virtue. I'm great, they're not, but they deserve to burn. That's how we, that's how we think. We don't say it out loud because we're all good people. But it's in us. Okay, so how do we turn? If that is what's in us, how do we go from that evil, dark, resentful, envious place in us to move towards joy? Great question. So let's move on. Here we are in verse 15. It says this. If I had spoken out like that, 
I would have betrayed your children. I love this. Even this prayer, like, this is my prayer life. But if I would have said that out loud, then I would have really been off my rocker, you know? But it's in us. So if I would have said that, I would have betrayed your children. When I have tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Isn't that beautiful? I was going crazy being so mad at those people. And until I entered the presence of God, once all of a sudden I added God to the mix and God became the true person, the true thing in my life, then all of a sudden I could go, okay, now what do I do? So we go crazy. And that's why part of the reason we come to church, why we have devotional life, we make sure there's space where we can connect with God. Because when we go off the deep end, it's not until we enter the presence of God until we begin to transition out of that. This is so great, though. So I tried to understand all this. It troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God, colon, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you have placed them on a slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by tears. They're like a dream. And when, the, when, wake, when one wakes away, only you arise, Lord, for you will despise them as fantasies. The word of God. I love it. And I love it because... If we're honest, we just think, oh, we have envy and we have resentment, but I'm going to pray and I'm going to get a precious moment. So I'm going to light a candle and God's going to bring me joy. And I think when we come to term with there is just deep rot and anger and resentment, then we can actually deal with it. And we so Christianize it and we so, you know, self-righteous it over it that we actually don't get to move towards healing. And if you've gotten to a place of deep resentment, And there have been people who have betrayed you and wronged you and systems that have wronged you. And you have so much anger towards those people, towards that person to think, I'm just going to pray about it and it's going to be fine. Then you are kidding yourself. I've yet to know the person who's like, I prayed and it was all okay. I think we need to own that there is deep resentment and deep anger. And I love this because this this passage says that we're taking baby steps towards repentance. No one goes from point A to point B. It is all of this journey. And so Asaph comes to this realization that he is so full of anger, so full of resentment, until he enters the presence of God. And he enters the presence of God and he begins to go, okay, I'm going to move towards God. In the story of the prodigal son, right, he comes to his senses. He looks at all the, the pig slop. He goes, you know what, there's a better way. And because we're humans, we kind of need a way to get out of what we're doing. Pig slop, there's a better way. I'm sure the pig farmer was like, no, it's my way. But for him to move, he had to say, no, that is not okay. And I think for us, in order for, if we have real deep resentment, sometimes we just need to go, God, you are going to have to take care of that person. That sounds awful. Who wants to say that out loud? But that's what we need to do. God is the ultimate judge. God is the ultimate righteous person. God is all powerful. He's going to need to take care of it. When we think we need to take care of it, our hearts get corrupted, right? And so maybe a baby step moving away from resentment towards joy is simply owning that punishment is not on me. God, somehow you're going to have to punish them. Sounds so un-PC to say, but still better than you trying to punish them, okay? So, okay, when I enter the presence of God, I can move towards him, and we take these baby steps of repentance. And what's so funny, for, for those of us who have little babies or grandkids or have been around them, little kids, right, they don't know how to nuance things. Right? If you say, do you like chocolate ice cream? And they like vanilla ice cream. They know I hate chocolate ice cream. Well, no one hates chocolate ice cream, let's be honest. But what they do is they don't know how to say, I just like vanilla ice cream better. They only know how to say, I like this and I hate this. 
That's what little kids do. That's what immaturity people, immature people do, right? As, as, your, as your kids are as, as trying to figure out their faith, a lot of times they go, I hate you and I hate God because they're trying to figure their thing out. It's a mature person who has nuance, who be able to hold those things in tension. And if we are really wrestling with resentment and anger and bitterness, sometimes we just have to lean into that and go, okay, I hate that because I want to love this. And that's part of the process. So it's baby steps. All right, in verse 21, it goes on to say this. Finally, there's a turn. But when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. It's like moment, right? It's like this huge temper tantrum. And finally, he writes, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was a senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And there's this part of the, the Christian journey that I think we forget. And that's simply this, that confession matters. It's weird. In our context, we never talk about it, right? Because who wants to talk about deep, dark things and who's judging who? But there's this thing about confession. It's not just saying, here's the seven things I did wrong. Like if, you, if you're in a relationship with someone and you just say, I'm sorry, I did this wrong, that never goes well. And that's how we've kind of taught to do confession. And I wish someone would have helped me because in marriage, that does not help. When, my, when I've done something wrong and my wife calls me and I say, I'm sorry, that never goes well, Right? I have to go, I was a senseless beast. I was out of control. This one decision I made caused death and destruction for everybody. What an idiot. I am so sorry. And she's like, thank you. Right? It's like, it's a totally different thing to go, I was, I was angry and to own all of the ramifications and all the death and destruction that come, came from my anger. When I, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Confession is not just writing out all the things that you've done wrong. Confession is owning the death and destruction that's left in the wake of those stupid decisions we've made. And true intimacy cannot happen until we own those things. It is so embarrassing, and I'm just going to say this, but I've been a Christian a long time. I'm a professional Christian, for crying out loud. And I have this friend of mine in pastoral ministry, so he too is an awesome Christian loves God and vocational ministry, professional Christian, and we got sideways, and we're still sideways. But he lives far away, so I never have to deal with him, right? But I think, God, forgive me for feeling this way about him. But I had no idea for the deep root, the deep division, the deep pain that happened until um, one time I ran into his wife instead of him. And I saw her, and I'm like, how can you be married to a man like that? Like it came in, I'm like, I'm like, I don't even want to talk to you. And of course I've never said that. I gave her a hug. I'm like, oh, God bless you. But in my heart, right, I'm like, how could you love someone like that? And it was like a stupid thing. But, but it, cause like thinking like, why would I really feel this way? It's always some stupid little thing that just took root and dove way deep. And so to go, God, forgive me for thinking this bad thing or, or having that thing. That's not what confession is. Confession is, oh my goodness, it has taken root so deep. I am a wild animal. I am a brute beast. And God, that is what I need forgiveness from. That is what I need healing from. That is what I need restoration from. And whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, if you're just in a relationship with someone and you screw up, that's just a little pro tip for you. Don't own just the thing you screwed up and be over with it. Own all the ramifications of that because they are deep and they are hurtful and they cause you to go two separate ways. But that is not the way that we're, we're, we're wired. So the last part of this prayer, it's only when we restore intimacy 
um, that we actually can have joy. The psalm ends like this. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by the right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. For my flesh may fail, for my heart, sorry, sorry, for my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all the unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of your deeds. There's this awesome thing that happens when we are honest with each other. When we recognize our brokenness, our evil, our flesh, whatever it is, when we come to terms with what that is, and we're honest about it, and we begin to confess those things, there's freedom in that. And the fact that we believe in a God who loves us so much, he knows the depth of all that and made a way to wipe that clean and to heal us and transform us. We begin to have intimacy with God and intimacy with each other. And it's like being on vacation again, right? All of a sudden, vacation bend is a totally different bend than normal bend. But it's not because I'm on vacation and I don't have to deal with things. It's actually because I can be present for all of a sudden. I don't have all this stuff in my head and I get to be with my kids. I get to be with my family and we're intimate. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we do like each other. We are having fun. And that's what God longs for us. Now, there is one last thing I want to point out before we're all done. You cannot skip this part. I was really worried to preach about joy. It's, it's Advent and it's joy, but the wheels are coming off. They're always off. The amount of hurt and pain and death and destruction that's happening in our little church body, in our community, in the whole world, they're, like, it seems so Christian lame to talk about joy on a, on a day like that, on a day like today. But because joy is not based on our momentary experiences, but joy is based on who we really are, I just want to make sure we caught this part of this prayer. Psalm 73 says this in 20, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Like we just need to own that. My heart and my flesh may fail. We are, we are such um, tender people. Like in a minute, it's all over. In a minute, we're over. A hundred years from now, no one's going to remember any of us. Like, we are just these momentary people in this momentary situation, and our heart and our flesh are failing us. Like, that's life. It's not, I'm going to become a Christian, and then I'm going to be Superman, and my life's going to be perfect. The waves and the storms, they come. The rain and the sun, they come to everybody. But Jesus says, right, whoever puts my words into practice. They're like a person who's built their house on a firm, on firm ground. So being joyful, talking about joy is not, life's going to be great. Woo, Merry Christmas. It's, I'm okay because God loves me, because I've been made with purpose. And because I've been loved and made with purpose, then I, in my soul, is okay. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. And that will never change. No matter your circumstance, no matter the chaos, no matter what happened today or yesterday or tomorrow, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So when the angel says, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That good news of great joy is this, that today 
in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah and the Lord. Now, because we still have you for a few more minutes and you can't go away and deal with your shopping list or all the stuff that's going to distract you, we have five more minutes and then we're going to spend some time in worship. But I would love for you to take out a little piece of paper, either in your bulletin or in front of you, and just reflect, does my head match my heart? We're so proud of our theology. We have good theology, but is it actually impacting who we are at the core of our being? Does your head match your heart? And I just want to ask you to reflect on, on one of these areas, of one of these little points of that prayer. Did one of those parts resonate with you? And is there a step that God might be inviting you to take to move from resentment towards joy? And maybe it is that your head knowledge is no longer doing it for you. All of your great theology has actually caused more resentment and more bitterness, and more envy, and not more joy. Maybe you are so wiped out by comparison. Maybe your Instagram or Facebook is just destroying your life, or your neighbors, or whatever it is, and you are so filled with envy because everyone's best version of yourself doesn't match up with your worst version of yourself. Maybe it's time to own your true anger and resentment, and just take a baby step towards um, reconciliation or, rec- or a baby step towards forgiveness. There's no way you can do that all at once, but maybe there's a baby step you could take. Maybe you have to confess something and not just the little action that you messed up, but all the ways that that action has caused irreparable damage seemingly. And maybe you need to wrestle with the idea that intimacy is what brings joy and God longs to be intimate with you And we long to be intimate with each other, for we are the body of Christ and we belong to one another.